I, I believe that really only at the, at the end of the day, only Jesus can ultimately fill us and, and fulfill us. And, and, and I think, I mean, I see this a lot as a pastor. You know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people who ruin their lives because they're looking uh, in all the wrong places to fill the emptiness inside of them. You maybe know people or you've heard stories of people who seemingly had it all, but they ended up taking their own life. Why is that? I believe it's because only Jesus can ultimately fulfill us and satisfy us and make us whole and make us the, the person that God ultimately wants us to be. I believe that, that he and he alone really is enough for our souls. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to talk about why is Jesus enough to satisfy us, to fill us on the inside. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 4, and we're going to look at a, a story in Scripture that was actually, some of it depicted in the, in the video, the, the woman at the well video. Um, John chapter 4, and we're going to think about is Jesus enough? And, and, and I want you to think about that question for you. What do you believe? Where are you looking for satisfaction? Are, are you fulfilled on, on the inside? Do you ever feel empty? Do you feel like you're searching? Do you feel like something is missing? And the invitation today is really for you to come to the well, for you to come to Jesus and let him give you living water, let him fill you up on the inside. Now, but you may be like, I don't know if I believe that, I'm not sure about that, I don't know if that's real, I don't know if that's true or not. Well, I want you to consider this story and what Jesus says and, and how he ministers to this lady and, and how that it applies to your life. So I want to give you three reasons. Well, I believe that Jesus is enough to fill us, to satisfy us. Number one, Jesus is enough because he meets us wherever we are. You don't come to him, he comes to you. And no matter what your life is like externally, no matter what the circumstances of your life are, those circumstances or your external condition is not something that will keep Jesus from you. He loves you like you are. He loves you where you are. Now, he loves you too much to leave you like you are and, and where you are, but he'll come to you and meet you where you are. And look at what he did with this lady here, and, and let's look at how it applies to us. I want you to see some barriers that he overcame to get to her. So John 4, 1 says, everyone the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, let's stop and unpack that for just a second. If you went to Israel or if you looked at a map of the region, you would see that if someone was going to go from Galilee to Judea, Judea to Galilee, that a, a straight line, the shortest course, uh, the shortest route would be to go through Samaria. But in actuality, we know historically that the Jews often did not do that. They often went around Samaria. They went the long way around because they basically despised the Samaritans. And the feeling was mutual. 
They pretty much hated each other. This was a centuries-old feud. So much so that the, the Jews didn't even want to be around the Samaritans. So much so that they would normally take the long way around. Uh, maybe for us in the South, this was kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Okay, that, that's kind of how they looked at each other. Uh, but it says here that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Well, I don't know that we can say 100% for sure, but what I uh, conclude based on the totality of this story that we're going to look at is that he had a divine appointment with this lady. He had a calling, an assignment uh, from his father to show this lady the love of God, that this wasn't a random happenstance kind of event, that this was a divine appointment. And I don't think that it's a random happenstance event that you're here today listening to this message. It may feel like it. For some of you, it may feel like that uh, somebody drug you here. And maybe somebody bought you some clothes, guys, that you really didn't even want to wear for Easter uh, this year. And, 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 you know, your wife got you some new clothes. Your girlfriend here said, you got to go to Christmas. You got to go to church with me. Uh, but you're not here by accident. Ultimately, you're here by divine appointment. There's something that God wants to do in your life. And so it says in verse 5 that he, Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey because you know, Jesus is God. He's divine, but he was also human, so he got tired just like we do. And so he sat down by the well, and it says it was about the sixth hour. It was noon. It was like the heat of the day, dry, dusty. Jesus has been walking. He's tired. And it says a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, this is somewhat unusual, not that she was going to the well. I mean, they had to do that probably every day. But it was unusual that she was coming at noontime during the heat of the day, and she was coming by herself. Because normally the women went to the well early when it was cooler, and they went as a group. And so, uh, and we'll unpack this more as we go along, but we can kind of uh, surmise, I think it's maybe implied here, that she was something of an outcast. And Jesus said to her, he said, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone away into the city uh, to buy food. And then in, in verse 9, she responds to his request and said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? So she's kind of shocked that he was talking to her. Why? Number one, because she was a Samaritan. Number two, because she was a woman. And in that culture, Jewish rabbis didn't normally talk to women in public. So this is kind of a shocking uh, conversation. She doesn't really quite get what's going on here. And so I want you to see four barriers that Jesus crossed that he overcame, so to speak, uh, to get to this lady and to minister the love of God to her. First, he overcame a racial barrier. Like I said, the Jews and the Samaritans generally despised each other. 
The Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds because they were Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles. And, and, and they looked down on them, and, and they despised them, and the feeling was mutual. Now, we have racial issues in our world uh, today, but this is nothing new. It, it goes back centuries and millennia, uh, it, it, you know, because really racism is not ultimately a skin problem. It's ultimately a sin problem. It is sin. Prejudice is wrong. We're all made in the image of God. God loves everyone. And so Jesus is overcoming this barrier that would have kept some of his Jewish compatriots just from walking even through Samaria. But he loved her. And so here's the thing. God loves you ethnicity, race, those kind of things are no issue with God. It's no barrier uh, to coming to him or him coming to you. The Bible tells us that in heaven around the throne of God, there's going to be people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping Jesus Christ. So he overcame a racial barrier. Second, he overcame a religious barrier. The divide between Jews and Samaritans wasn't just racial, it was religious. Because the Samaritans sort of practiced Judaism. They practiced parts of it. They only believed part of the Old Testament. Uh, they were kind of uh, liberal, I guess, that you could say. And, and of course, the, the Jewish rabbis despised this. Uh, you know, the Jews worshipped and offered sacrifices in Jerusalem. They, they worshipped and offered sacrifices on a place, at a place called Mount Gerizim. And, and so there was a religious divide there. I think how this applies to us is this. Your religion won't keep you from God, but your religion won't get you to God either. The only way to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But he did not let this woman's religion stop him from ministering to her. He didn't say, get your theology straightened out, and then you can come and we can have a conversation. He went looking for her. He went to her. And that's how he works in our lives today as well. Three, he overcame a gender barrier. Like I said, uh, Jewish rabbis normally didn't talk to women in public, a lot of times even their wives. There was a prejudice there. She was shocked that uh, he was talking to her, but it just goes to show us. Once again, the Bible tells us, Genesis 1, that we're all made in the image of God, male and female. Uh, your gender is no barrier to God. He loves men and women equally. He wants to have a relationship with each one of us. He came to her even as a woman, a Samaritan woman in this disenfranchised uh, position. He was looking for her, and he's still looking for people, uh, men, women, boys, and girls today. And these kind of man-made barriers are not going to hinder him from coming and finding us. And then the, the final barrier is a social barrier. Now, this was noon. She was there by herself. This would seem to imply that she was something of an outcast. And as we read through this, we're going to see that she was living 
a, a sinful lifestyle, what in that day and time would have really been considered a scandalous lifestyle. And so I think we can assume that she was there by herself because she was kind of a, a community outcast. She was rejected by the other women. Maybe she was an object of scorn. Maybe she was an object of gossip and ridicule, but Jesus still met her where she was. He still loved her. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus is the friend of sinners, which is good news for each and every one of us because we're all sinners. We have a tendency to want to judge other people for their sin and excuse our sin but we all need Jesus to be the friend of sinners. We all need his grace because we all sin. And we, all, we may sin in somewhat different ways, but we need his grace. It's good news that he meets us where we are. It's good news that he loves us where we are and as we are, that he loves us right now, not just the new, future, better, improved version of us, but he loves the messed up version of me and you right now. And he's coming and he's looking for us. And there's not human barriers that are keeping him from us. Listen, some of you may have experienced, may know people who have experienced being rejected by religious people, by church, that kind of thing, you know, based on outward stuff or, you know, color of skin, the way you dress, what you have, what you don't have, certain kinds of beliefs or lifestyles or all those kind of things. But we need to see from this that that's religion that's not Jesus. And whatever's going on outwardly in your life and however you're treated outwardly by others, that does not keep Jesus from you and that does not mean that he does not love you. He meets you wherever you are. Second, Jesus is enough because he satisfies our deepest need. Jesus is enough because he satisfies our deepest need. Now, I want you to notice something. This is very intentional. Not needs, plural, but need, singular. This is the key to the, to the whole message. The, the first part of just kind of the setup. This is the key to understanding what's going on here. We all have needs, right? I mean, there's certain things we need physically to survive. We have emotional needs, spiritual needs, intellectual needs. We have wants, too. But what we need to learn from this story is underneath all of that, foundational to all of that, all of us have one overwhelming, fundamental need that is true for each and every one of us, no matter what the external condition or circumstances of our life is. Look at where this conversation goes. She had asked him a question in, in verse 9, and he answers and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, because ultimately what we're going to see, where we're going to get to in the end of the conversation, is he ultimately wants her to see him as the Messiah, as the Savior. But if, if you knew what I was offering you, if you knew who I am, is what he's saying, and I'm, you know, if you knew this and I said, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, 
living water to someone in that area of the world in that time would have been like rainwater, fresh water, running water, a, a lake, a river, that kind of thing, as opposed to stagnant water that was collected in a well or a cistern or something like that. That, that would have been the, kind of the physical meaning of that term. But Jesus is taking this physical term, this material, tangible thing, and using it to express a very important spiritual concept. He's transitioning the conversation from the material to the spiritual at this moment, but she stays behind. She has some trouble following along with him because she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? She's like, Talking about living water, you don't even have a jug to draw any water from the well. Then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us uh, the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? But notice Jesus' answer. This is the key to the whole thing. He said, whoever drinks of this water, this physical water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What Jesus is offering her is he's offering her living water. You say, what does that mean? Well, I I want to read you a quote, and I encourage you to follow along on the screen. It's from John Piper. And uh, there's a couple mornings this week that I woke up around 4 o'clock, and one of those mornings I, just, I was studying, and I came across this, and uh, it was worth getting up at 4 o'clock for, because to me, this just clarifies everything Jesus is talking about. The best, clearest description of this that, 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 that I've ever heard, he said this in a sermon, talking about living water. He said, we know he is not talking about physical thirst. That's clear. But what he is saying is that the soul has something like a physical thirst. This is the most important thing. Wait, sorry. When you go without water, your body gets thirsty. And the soul, when it goes without God, gets thirsty. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God. You see the analogy? We're created by God for God. So uh, there's something inside of us that can only be satisfied by God himself. Not even what God can do for us, but by knowing God himself. He says, this is the most important thing to know about yourself. You are made to live on God. You have a soul, a spirit. There is a you that is more than a body. We're not just flesh and bones. We're not just a physiological being. We have a soul. We have a spirit. He says, in that you, if it does not drink from the greatness and wisdom and power and goodness and justice and holiness and love of God, will die of thirst. Listen, Jesus doesn't just have what our souls need. He is what our souls need. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. She was confused. Don't be confused. She was thinking of physical hunger and thirst. He's talking about spiritual soul hunger and thirst. He's saying, only I can satisfy you. 
Piper goes on to say, he is the bread of life. He is the living water. Our souls were made for Jesus. The ache in our hearts is at root, an ache for Jesus. This is how the soul lives on God. It lives on Jesus. Are you living on Jesus? Are you connected to God through him? Are you drinking the bread of water? Are you eating uh, the bread of life? We were made by God and for God, and we're going to be empty and thirsty and hungry spiritually on the inside until we meet Jesus Christ. But here's our problem. That's why I showed the video at the beginning. We have a tendency in our self-will to want to run the show and to resist bowing our knees, surrendering to God. But we've still got that emptiness, that hunger, that thirst on the inside. So what do we end up doing often? We end up trying to find human ways to fill that hole, to quench that thirst. I mean, and let's be honest. We're Americans. What are we taught as Americans from our childhood now? That life is about being happy, right? You do you. You do what you need to do to be happy and to have the life that you want to have. I mean, this was, uh, we saw this just over a week ago. Our youngest daughter, Lily, went to a computer coding conference. We're not sure why she went to a computer coding conference. This just kind of came out of the blue, but the school paid for kids to go if they wanted to go. And so she went down to, to Knoxville and spent a Saturday down there. But during the course of you know, learning about, I think she focused on app development. But during the course of the day, there were like a couple of motivational talks, like kind of self-help uh, kind of speeches. And uh, the, the title of uh, one of them that the professor shared was, What I Learned from the Pioneer of Positive Psychology. And, and the key phrase, the big takeaway from the talk that he was telling these teenagers to do was to chase happiness. And that's what we're taught, right? Do what you need to do to make you happy. Or if a relationship's not making you happy, move on to another relationship. It's part of the reason why the divorce rate's so high. Find somebody who'll make you happy. Just like, uh, you know, it's such a myth that another person or a thing or something external can make us happy. But that's what we're taught. Do what makes you happy. Find things that will fulfill you. Well, where do people look? Sometimes people look in substances. Right? Heal a hurt. Fill a hole, make you feel better, help you cope with what's going on. What's the problem? It's the law of diminishing returns. It takes more and more and more, and it eventually leads to addiction. Some people try to fill that hole on the inside with shopping. Now, I don't personally get this one, uh, but I mean, seriously, I mean, there, there are people that's like, and if I can buy something, it temporarily makes me feel better, at least until I get the credit card bill. Right? But that's trying to fill a hole, some, fill something internal with something external. For some people, it's just being busy. If I'm busy enough, I have to really deal with what's going on. Or if I'm busy enough, it gives me a sense of identity and a sense of, uh, of worth. I mean, you ask somebody how they're doing, what's the most common answer? It's probably number one is fine. Number two is busy, right? Sometimes eating. Now, obviously, eating's a good thing. Obviously, I have nothing against eating. You can look at me. But, uh, you know, people do stress eating, right? And, and, and try to 
Fill a hole on the inside. Deal with the problem. Deal with the stress with something external. How about entertainment? I mean, our society is consumed with entertaining ourselves. I mean, how much time do we spend on our phones? How much time do we spend watching sports or some other kind of hobby or whatever it may be, you know, playing games or whatever? I mean, we can entertain ourselves to death sometimes. We can miss really living life because we're using these kind of things to try to fill something that we're missing on the inside. Maybe your job, you know, work's a good thing. It's from God. But if that's where we find our identity... It's become an idol. Money. You know, the myth of more. If I have more money, I can do what I want to do, and then I'm going to be satisfied. Then I'm going to be fulfilled. Then I'm going to be happy. But why is it so many rich people commit suicide? Money doesn't satisfy us on the inside. Religion. You know, religion can be like a placebo that keeps you from the real thing. Maybe it's a, a romantic relationship. Some people, some people are like, if I can just find the right person, then I'll be happy then I'll be fulfilled. Can I just tell you that is a recipe for disaster in a relationship? Because you're putting a weight on somebody that they can't carry. You're putting that person in the place of God in your life at that point. You're, you're making them an idol in a sense because if you're expecting them to fulfill and satisfy and complete you, you're asking them to do only what Jesus can do. Maybe it's sex. Pornography, different things like it's going to make me feel better. You know, success, if I do enough, if I accomplish enough. What I'm saying is all these things leave us empty. All of these things are sorry substitutes for the living water and the bread of life. Only Jesus really satisfies. I mean, when I was running from God in my life, I was so empty. It wasn't the hardest season of my life, but it was the worst season of my life. I was miserable. But what I've found is even in hard seasons, if we're walking with Jesus, if we're coming to the well, so to speak, he fills us up and he can give us peace and hope and joy even in the midst of our trials. I want you to watch this video. It's a, it's a testimony from a family in our church that recently experienced Jesus being enough during a trial. So... I'm the genius of the church that decided to get hit by a semi back uh, last week. It was on Tuesday. And I was in the hospital for a little under a week. Managed to break uh, about 14 ribs, <clears throat> tore my rotator cuff, broke a few bones, you know, all that fun stuff. And <clears throat> through all of this, I managed to keep a really high spirit. Was able to be myself the entire time because I just knew that God protected me because I should have died. Probably should have been paralyzed, probably should have had brain injury, but I just walked out with these for minor considering what all happened by getting hit by the semi. And just knowing that God protected me, I just was able to keep in mind that Jesus was enough through all this. And I'm going to be able to keep doing that, knowing that God kept me around for a huge purpose in my life. Where I don't know what that is, but I will be able to figure that out whenever the time comes. Um. Tuesday, the day of Zach's accident, um, they called, the police called me, and of course, since Zach himself wasn't calling me, I was definitely very worried, but they said that, um, that he was able to give them my, my phone number, so um, I got there quick enough that he was still in the mangled mess of a car. Um, in my experience as a nurse, 
seeing the car itself definitely had me worried. I at least knew he didn't have a brain injury, but at that point we didn't know if it was a spinal injury or anything like that. But um, Zach's right through it all. The injuries that he came out with are just a miracle. I don't know how many different doctors and nurses and um, the EMT told us how lucky he was and we had to tell him every time that we didn't feel that was luck, that that was God's hand on our son. And some of them just nodded and agreed, but some of them looked at us like we were crazy, but we knew what it was. We knew it was God and we were just so blessed. And of course, many of you know that my, di my dad died um, a few days ago and I was able to even still hold on to, to God through it all. Um, he kept us strong. He actually helped me to, to move past some things in my history and my past with my dad. And we're still working on it, but God has been so good to us. So good. So Jesus is enough because he meets us wherever we are. He's enough because he satisfies our deepest need. Number three, last reason I want you to see is that he's enough because he saves us from our sins. Now, this is really important because you may be saying, well, I mean, this sounds good. I mean, Jesus loves me where I am. He wants to give me living water. He wants to fulfill me on the inside. But here's the problem. Listen, we were created by God and for God, but Scripture says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and our sins separate us from God. We, we've been going through the book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings, and we see there that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't have life within us uh, because we don't have God within us until we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. We're not drinking from the living water. We're not drinking from the bread of life. And, and so, as we pick back up in this conversation, what we're going to see is, is Jesus does what's seemingly kind of a, a, a really hard right turn. It kind of seems abrupt, but we need to get that in order to receive him and, and receive this living water that he offers, that we have to deal with our sins. You see, she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still on the material, the external. She's like, okay, this is a good deal. I don't have to come here and uh, every day by myself in the heat of the day and fill up this jug anymore. She's still thinking material. Jesus is on the spiritual, and he's about to read her heart and about to bring her face-to-face -face with her spiritual condition. You know, he knows everything about us. We can try real hard, but there's nothing we can hide from him. So Jesus says this to her, go call your husband and come here. Now remember, he's never met her before. Jew, Samaritan, not even supposed to be talking to each other. So she answers and said, well, I have no husband. And that's sort of true. Jesus said to her, you've well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. In other words, he, he's, he's dealing with her sin because he's making it very clear here that being married and living with somebody are two completely different things. And he, he's like, okay, so here, here's the thing. You're, you're in sin, and I, I think kind of what he's implying here is how you're trying to fill the emptiness in your heart is through men. 
through relationships. Now, she responds in one of the great duh moments of the Bible, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I mean, she's got to be flabbergasted. I mean, could you imagine meeting somebody that you've never met before, a stranger, and, and he or she starts telling you about your life? Things there's no way they could have known. And so Jesus is now revealing himself. He's getting at her heart. He's exposing her spiritual condition. So now she kind of changes the topic seemingly, although I think really she's beginning to recognize her need for God, her need to worship, her need to, for sacrifice for her sins, for her sins, because she gets into this Jew Samaritan thing, verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. How could salvation be of the Jews? Because the Messiah was coming through the Jews. That He's pointing to himself. He says the hour is coming and now he is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and in truth. And now here comes the climax of the conversation. This is where he was bringing her to. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who's called Christ, the anointed one, the one who's sent from God. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In other, and she could believe this because he had just told her all things about herself. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the Messiah, I'm the anointed one, I'm the one sent from God, I'm the Savior, I'm the one who's come from heaven to earth to give you this living water. You see, the Bible teaches us that uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We need life, but we're not saved by our own works. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves spiritually alive. We deserve uh, condemnation and judgment, but that God loves us like we are, where we are, as we are, so much so that he did what we could never do. And he came to us when we couldn't get to him. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on humanity, took on flesh, came born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect and a sinless life. And he died on the cross in our place for our sins, dying the death that we deserve to die, paying the penalty that we owe God, taking the punishment that we deserve from God. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, which isn't a religious belief, but it was something that was attested to by eyewitnesses who gave their lives, not for what they believed, but for what they saw. Uh, and, and, and so it, that proves that Jesus is the Son of God. It proves that he is the Savior of the world. And that means that he is the one who can give us living water. He is the one who can and will satisfy our souls if we'll receive him. That's why he came. He came to fill us up, to make us alive on the inside. He didn't come for religion. He didn't come for external things. He didn't come for head knowledge. So if today you know that you're empty, and you know you've been trying to fill your life up with things that really don't satisfy, will you come to the well and drink of the living water? Will you come to Jesus or come back to Jesus for some of you. If you want to drink this living water, there's really three basic things you need to do. First of all, you need to admit your spiritual emptiness. 
and admit the fact that you have no solution for it. And you need to stop looking in all the wrong places. Second, you have to repent of sin. Just like he dealt with her sin, he deals with our sin. Listen, we we can't come to Jesus and say, oh, take me to heaven, give me a fire insurance policy, fix my problems, but I'm going to hang on to my life and I'm still going to do my own thing. We have to come to a place of surrender. And, and, And listen to me. Some of you are empty and some of you are struggling spiritually. Even though you know this stuff in your head, Because you're not at a place of surrender. You're still hanging on to your life, trying to do your own thing. And and listen, you can have Jesus, but you can't have Jesus and your sin and yourself at the same time. He says we have to repent and believe the gospel. To repent means to turn around, to do an about face. It, it, It means that we admit our sinful condition and we ask him to forgive us of our sins, and we want him to take control of our lives. See, ultimately, we have to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, which is not just a head thing, but it's a place of surrender. It's a place of dependence upon him, believing that he's the Son of God, believing that he died for our sins, believing that he rose from the dead but committing our life to him because the Bible says if we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And so to conclude this, I just want to ask a question. Do you need Jesus today? I'm not talking about what he can do for you. I'm not talking about a magic cure-all for the difficulties of life. I'm not talking about a fire insurance policy for heaven. But I'm talking about, do you need Jesus? Do you need God? That's ultimately what your soul needs. He is the only one who's going to satisfy. Will you drink the living water? Will you eat the bread of life? Will you come to him in repentance and faith today? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, if you would.